back into the game here. Father, we thank you. Yes, we do thank you for your presence. There's a lot going on in my head and my heart these days, Father, thinking about where we're going and what we're doing and what you want of us and what you desire for us. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to see those things. I think the words of worship and word and witness are very important to us right now. How do we worship you well in our private life, in our prayer life, in our corporate life, in our decisions? How do we root ourselves in your word and let it guide us? How do we become people that uh, are a, not only good people, moral people, in, reflective of you, but people that are actually moving out and sharing who you are with others and challenging them to that relationship as well? We ask for wisdom. We ask for discernment. And maybe most of all, we ask for desire. Give us desire, birth desire in our hearts. Let us understand where you're taking us. And give us the desire to get there. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just FYI, I've been having a lot of conversations this week just with different people concerning, you know, all this stuff that we're preaching on and and talking about here. And uh, last week we talked about, you know, befriending internationals that are coming on into our midst and things like that. So uh, I'm connecting with a few groups uh, that, you know, kind of do that in this area and, and, and looking more into that. I've been looking up, you know, what groups are around here. Did you know there's like like 8,000 Persians living right here in Gladwin, in Gladwin area? Um, and so I, I'm excited about that. And I, I'm just praying that the Lord really directs and guides us where where we should go and what we should get involved with in the next coming years. So uh, pray for us in leadership as we we kind of explore these conversations and get around people and stuff like that. So um, but if you haven't been with us uh, well before Easter, we ended up a four week sermon about the story of the Bible, you know, sort of a cover to cover flyover of the whole thing. If, if you can do that in four weeks. And then uh, we had uh, Dawn spoke for us and we had a couple weeks of Easter stuff. And now we've been in this, this second series that's called The Missing Half. And these series actually go together. They could be actually labeled as one series, but we broke them up with titles just to make it bite-sized and, and to kind of get our minds wrapped around them. So right now, today, we're in the third sermon of, of four called The Missing Half. That's the, the series title. And uh, if you want, you can go back on YouTube, Facebook, or just the website, and you can listen or watch all the sermons and it'll catch you up because they kind of overlap and there's a lot of little things that I say over and over again. If you didn't listen to the first ones, you wouldn't understand. So uh, try to keep up if you haven't been with us. But anyway, uh, today we're going to ask ourselves the question, am I called to missions? You may have never asked yourself that question, but I think if you walk with Jesus any amount of time, you start to ask that question of yourself. Uh, you know, who, how, do, how does somebody get called to missions? Am I called to it? Things like that. Um, we've learned 
if you remember in the past, to, to look at the Bible not as 66 different disconnected books, but as one book with one introduction, one story, one conclusion. And uh, in the introduction, which is Genesis 1 to 11, if you remember, uh, God creates this diversity of all these different people groups, and uh, which in the end, you know, he, in the story, he, he goes about unifying all them, and in the end, which is uh, Revelations 5 and on, uh, we have this this uh, God bringing t- together all these diverse uh, people groups for His glory. I mean, it, it'll be a glorious thing to see that, right? And uh, and at that moment, we will experience our greatest joy. And as God um, u- seeks to unify all of that diversity, remember, He's not erasing the diversity. He glories and He loves the diversity. And there are two parts to the the covenant promise that he made with Abraham, very important passage. And that's the beginning of the story of the Bible from, you know, from Genesis chapter 12, one through three, this is where, where we get this. And then it goes to through Revelations four. And that's sort of the meat, the story of the Bible. And that two part promise in Genesis 12, one through three, the first part of it is that God desires to bless Abraham and his descendants and we call that the top line of the covenant, all right? And then the bottom line of that covenant is that God says that Abraham and his descendants will be a blessing to all the nations, all the ethne, all the ethnic groups of the earth uh, by bringing God's, God, the message of God, the, the, the glory of God to these nations, um, sharing, basically sharing, witnessing to them, right? And that is the bottom line. So we're blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. It just, I, I hope you start dreaming about that. That's exactly what I want you to be thinking all the time. But we've also said that most Christians only read half their Bible, right? That uh, we, we, we are focused on God's desire to bless us. And remember, we're saying there's nothing wrong with that. God wants to bless us. We understand that. Uh, but we often neglect his desire to go and bless the other nations of the world. We don't think about them, right? Uh, we're very comfortable with our own, that kind of thing. And what we've learned, actually, it, growing up in church is often not incorrect, but it is often incomplete, right? It's not incorrect, but it is incomplete. And knowing all that will help us to determine if we actually need a call or need a calling, right, into missions or not, right? And we're going to explore that today. You know, the disciples didn't get this all right. We know that. I mean, they were kind of like bumbling dorks sometimes. Uh, and uh, today, we're, let's, let's begin looking at this uh, through the miraculous feedings. You remember Jesus fed 5,000 and then he fed 4,000. You may or not, may not even think about it, but he fed two groups, right? And um, you may think he only, he only fed one, but... He, he, you know, after he fed the 5,000, you would think the disciples would be approached with the feeding of the 4,000 and it would be nothing, right? They'd be like, oh, yeah, we got this one, right? But it says in Matthew 15, 32 through 33, and this is the feeding of the 4,000. He says, the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? Now, where is their faith? They've been through this once already. They've been through this with a thousand, you know, this is a thousand fewer people, right, in this moment. So they should have said no problem. They should have looked at Jesus and said, do your thing. You know, we, we know what you can do. 
We've seen it already with more people. So why didn't they say that? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer, I think, lies somewhere in their self-centeredness. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to think about that today. But there are four clues to understanding their unbelief in these passages. And the first is to analyze the word, the Greek words they used in both different passages for baskets, right? When the 5,000 were fed, the type of basket used was, a Greek, was to gather all the leftovers. Remember, they had leftovers. They gathered in these, in these baskets. It was a Greek word for a smaller basket that was usually used mostly by Jewish peoples, Right? And that was, it was called a kofinos or something like that. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But with the 4,000, the basket used to gather all the leftovers was a Greek word for a larger basket that was commonly used by Gentiles. All right? And that was called a spurus, if I say it correctly. Now, the second clue in this whole thing is is in the leftovers, right? When the 5,000 were fed, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And when the 4,000 were fed, there were seven baskets of leftovers. And if you remember from past sermons, the number 12 always seems to hint at the, at the 12 tribes of Israel. And the seven always hints at the 70 nations that was, that was created at the Tower of Babel. And then our third clue uh, comes from the, the preceding verse of this feeding in Matthew 15, verse 31. And as the crowds saw Jesus doing this miracle, uh, it, it said that they glorified the God of Israel. Now listen to that. You, you usually don't think about phrase, phrases like this too much, right? You just read right through it. But think about that. They glorified the God of Israel. This, this, this is the only place where the phrase God of Israel is used in the New Testament without being quoted from the Old Testament, right? And usually the text would say, they glorified the Lord or they glorified God as if they were familiar with the Lord or familiar with the concept of God, right? But it's very specific to say it this way as if to point out that they were not Jews who were saying it. So they glorified, they, those, those people, glorified the God of Israel, something they weren't familiar with, right? And then our fourth hint comes from the, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 8. And after Jesus fed the 4,000, he went by boat uh, over to Dalmanutha, if I say that correctly too, right? Which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Meaning that Jesus fed the 4,000 somewhere on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, most likely. In the area, probably, of the Decapolis. Which, if you remember from past sermons as well, that uh, that was uh, an area of ten cities that was largely Gentile, Right? Um, it was a mixed area. They were trying to mix it, but it was still largely Gentile. And so you take all that together, and this largely reveals that the 4,000 that were fed that day were Gentiles. And the, so the 5,000 that were fed was a top-line feeding, and then the 4,000 that were fed was a bottom-line feeding. So Jesus reveals himself as sort of a whole covenant Messiah. He's doing sort of miracles for both Jew and Gentile alike. Now the disciples at that moment lacked the faith that Jesus would or could feed the 4,000. Why? 
because they were so focused on the top line of the covenant. They were so focused on the fact that Jesus came for Jews, that Jesus came to bless them as the Messiah. So they weren't thinking about him blessing Gentile. And that attitude sort of carries over with us at times, and it makes us blind to God's heart for all the nations of the earth out there. Right, And sometimes we're so focused on God blessing us, blessing our church, our nation, our families, our children, our ministries, all that kind of stuff, that we never dream that we are actually called to reach Muslims, to reach Buddhists, to reach Hindus or tribal peoples or the whole block of the Chinese, which is one of the largest people groups you know, in, in the world, right? And so we don't, we don't think about this stuff. And what we find out is that our Christianity isn't incorrect, but it has been incomplete. It has been incomplete. How does God use a church that's living half blind? Good question, right? How does he use a church that's living half blind? And what does all this have to do with a call or a calling, right? Well, I think the connection is found in seeing how God overcomes the church's hesitancy to go and reach the nations. And we can walk through Acts to see that. You know, it's been said, and you know, we always say this in mission circles. I'm not sure we say it in normal church life too much. But, but we all, it's been said that if you don't do Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will get Acts chapter 8, verse 1. If you don't do Acts 1, 8, you get Acts 8, 1. Right. And so let's we have to look at what Acts 1, 8 says first. Let's let's go there. And it says, but you will receive power. This is Jesus. Right. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Right. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Very familiar passage. Right. We all probably heard that a million times. And you know that Jesus is, 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 this is right before his ascension. It's after his resurrection. It's right before he ascends to heaven. And he's given his final instructions beginning, uh, obviously, with the city of Jerusalem. And then he adds Judea. And then he adds Samaria, which aren't cities, by the way. But they are two very different areas. All right? Very different areas. Um, Judea was primarily Jewish, right? If you remember that. And Samaria was home to what we what they would consider to be half breeds, those who had mixed sort of not only Jewish and Gentile blood, but also beliefs. So they, they believe different things. It's sort of like they, you know, they really kind of tore the scriptures apart, so to speak. And then so they were regarded as the untouchables of the day, the people that no good respect of Jew would ever go around. And he's instructing them to go there as well right among those people and finally he says to the very ends of the earth right now i want you to notice what he does not say he does not say but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses first in jerusalem and secondly in judea and thirdly in samaria and then if you still have time to the ends of the earth he doesn't say that Right. It was not intended to be a progressive thing. Right. 
It, it wasn't like, well, get your feet wet in Jerusalem, and when you become more comfortable and you finish your work here, then you can go on to Judea. And then when you finish your work there, you can go on to Samaria. And then when maybe if you still have time before you're dead, you can go and take it to the rest of the earth. He did not say that. It was never supposed to be progressive, right? And by the way, if it were that way, we would never get anywhere, would we? Because we would stay in Jerusalem. We might go to Judea, but we'd stay pretty much in Jerusalem and Judea. Nor did he say, or Judea, or Samaria, or the ends of the earth. There was no choice given, right? It was a collective call on the people of God to go to these places, to take the gospel to these places. It is implied in Jerusalem, right, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. No choice given. This is our king speaking. You don't tell the king he's wrong, right? That is the biggest problem with Christian culture right now is we have lost the, the sight of Jesus' kingship, his lordship, and his ability and his, and his, his right to, to, to command us. And this is one of his commands. God wanted them to be impacting all segments of the world as individuals and as a collective body for the rest of history. And then God gave them even more fuel. Jesus gives them more fuel in the form of his Holy Spirit for this task, right? In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we read this. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the, the disciples, uh, the apostles and whatnot, they, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each, each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them now this is not the pentecostal tongues that you hear spoken by some christians which you know to you might just sound like babbling and i'm not saying that that's a wrong thing i'm saying this is not what this means it means i speak five other tongues in other words i speak five other languages that's what it means right so these guys began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them so what is happening Right? We, why speak in non-Jewish tongues? What's the purpose? There's got to be a purpose. Right? So if, we're mere, if, if it were merely for all the Jews, you've you got to think about it. It's like they're all, they're all coming to Jerusalem from all the outlying areas, all the different nations, all the Jews that have been dispersed out there over the centuries out into other, other nations, living among other nations. They are coming into Jerusalem, and if, if it were just for them to hear this message, then it, they would have spoken in Hebrew or Aramaic. It would have made sense. They all knew those. Unlike most Americans, they usually know, you know two, three, four languages, whatever, you know. And, um, and you know, so, so they, they would have spoken Hebrew or Aramaic. So what is happening? You have to ask yourself that question. Well, I think it is a miraculous reminder and a teaching tool of God that his in, of his intention to go and reach every ethnic group on the earth. That's why this happened. Look at the next set of verses, 
verses 5 and 6. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language spoken. In other words, these people had been living among other people groups. They have such an affinity to that people group. They've learned the language. It it is home for them. It it has become sort of their people. They're insiders to this point in those people groups. So it was for these Jews who had come from all these different nations uh, on earth to get the message. To get it into them that God wants to them to go back and reach all the Gentiles in their hometowns. This is why this happened. Because it's in their own language. God is making it clear it was not just for them. This message was not just for the Jews. But it was for all the nations, all the Gentiles back home in their hometowns. And what happens? Well, the gospel explodes with more more than 3,000 new believers that day, right? And then you notice, as they speak to all these people, they say, fellow Israelites. So Peter was really reaching only Jews. And then you, so it's a great start. You know, you have this this beginning of Acts 1, 8, right? It was, it was to be Jerusalem. Uh, it, but we remember it was, it was to be Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. In Acts 2.47, we find that their numbers grew even even greater, right? It grew daily, it says. In chapter 3, Peter heals a beggar, if you remember, and a crowd forms, and he addresses them again. He says, fellow Israelites, still only Jews, right? Many of those that day believed, so they grew. their numbers grew to more than 5,000. Again, great start. I'm a little excited. Great start, but they, they, they only got the first part of Acts 1.8 down. Jerusalem, that is it, just Jerusalem. They've not even thought about or touched Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They've not even gone there. They've not even had that discussion because they're not thinking about it. Acts chapter 5, we find that after they're flogged, they teach in the synagogue or the temple uh, the temple courts, and then from house to house, they're going around teaching. And we assume this was still in Jerusalem because not much has changed. And again, great start, but they're still missing Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Still. In Acts 6, if you remember, numbers increase again, but still in only Jerusalem. And Stephen, you know, did miraculous signs among the, the people in some were so jealous that they bring false charges against him. And as a result, he's forced to give his testimony in front of the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And they don't really like what he has to say. So in Acts chapter 7, they stone him to death. And you remember, at that moment, it seems like things turned south. Right? Acts chapter 7, we're getting to Acts chapter 8, 1. Right? Think about it. Here we are at the end of the seventh chapter in the book of Acts. 25% of the book has already gone by and no sign at all of the disciples obeying Jesus' command to go to all nations with the gospel. They're acting as if the covenant promise of being blessed was an exclusive property of only Jews. Hadn't they been listening to Jesus? Had they listened at all? And I'm asking myself the question, do I listen at all? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not. 
So what happens? God takes a radical measure and he scatters the Christians through persecution. Let's read Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So note right here, the church has not left her hometown of Jerusalem to this point. They have hoarded God's blessing. They've not taken it to the nations. And now, through persecution, they begin to fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8. At least in being scattered to Judea and Samaria. And what are the results? Well, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I might just get that tattooed on my body someplace someday. That's a good verse. God's intended purpose had finally started to be fulfilled. God used persecution for his own mission and his own glory. And by the way, he has the right to do that. Could God bring bring about for the church in America... An Acts 8-1 experience if we are not obeying Acts 1-8. Could he do that? Possibly. Uh, I've never, I'm 54 years old. I've never felt so divided in my country. I've never felt, and I think many people say it right now, that we are possibly moving towards a new civil war. This country could fall apart. And is that going to be the, the Republicans' fault, the Democrats' fault? Who's that, whose fault is that going to be? I don't care. Maybe we're going to have just an economic collapse. Maybe it's going to force us to leave the U.S. to go find jobs that actually pay something anymore. Finding ourselves living among people who have never known the Lord, never had a chance to read the Scriptures, never had a relationship with a Christian whatsoever, don't have a church on their street corners. I've lived among these people. You think you got it bad. Man, oh man, there are places where, and you, you say, well, with, with the internet. No, not true. I have, li- I have worked in villages in the middle of Indonesia, and they do not have the internet out there. They are not getting the gospel to them. But does that mean that the bottom line is greater than the top line? That God's love for the nations out there is greater than his love for us as his people. That God allows persecution for the sake of reaching the nations. It doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound good. It sounds kind of wrong. But think about this. Didn't those people who were scattered you know, in, in, in persecution, didn't they have to learn to trust God at greater levels for every single thing in their life? I think they did. And what happened? Persecution strengthened their faith. They knew God at greater levels. So God sent them not only for the sake of the nations, but for their sake as, as, as well. There's, it's not fun getting fat and, you know, just not doing anything in the world. Gosh. 
their blindness taken away, right? And their walk with God increases. They're living in risky faith. God loves his people enough not to allow them to grow complacent. And by doing so, they miss the greatest joy they could ever have in this earth. Don't you think that it was friends and family and jobs and security and paychecks and comfort and a new car and a house and the American dream and all that garbage which kept them in Jerusalem? Maybe not the American dream, maybe the Jerusalem dream, right? All of those everyday things that we take for granted or we you know, worry about so much sometimes probably kept those believers from obeying the Lord's will to its complete aim, right? And God says, I've got higher priorities. I've got much higher priorities than all these things, than your American dream. I want to bring about my greatest glory and I want to bring about your greatest joy. That's what he's saying to us. And in process, God takes our eyes off of all these temporal things which we think bring us happiness and security. And it gets us focused on him where there is absolute permanent joy. See, we hold sort of a false security in our own culture, right? We really do. We know the value of a dollar. We know how to buy things. We know how to speak the language. I have no problem in communicating with people all around me. I know how to act around certain types of people of authority or the opposite sex and all that kind of stuff, not to get myself in trouble and all that garbage. I know how to get places. It's easy for me. I know where to live. I know how to get an apartment or buy a house and all that kind of stuff. We know everything about living within our own culture. So easy. But going cross-culturally, we don't know any of those things. And we are put, put in a place of total reliance on the Lord. Missionaries, ask any of them how, how, they, how they felt their first time growing, going cross-culturally. And you know when they're put into situations like that, they have to cry out, Lord, help me, I don't know what to do. Kim and I experienced that quite often in uh, living in Indonesia. And what does Jesus say to us? He says, I've got you right where I want you, and I'm going to take care of everything, and you're going to watch it. You're going to watch it happen. And that's when we learn that most of our security is in our culture, and very little of it is actually in God. I remember when I first went over to Indonesia, I just lost everything. Nobody knew me. Nobody had ever seen me preach a sermon Nobody ever, like, they didn't know my history. Even among the foreigners, the missionaries, nobody, none of them knew me. I lost all of my identity. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a place, but man, it is unnerving. But Christ became much more important to me. So he takes all of our false security away, and he puts all of our security on himself. So would God bring about an Acts 8-1 experience to bring about Acts 1-8 obedience? I think he would. I think it's possible. He has many times in history. Did he get their security off of culture, off of themselves, and onto himself? I think he did. And wherever they went, they preached the word of God. Amen to that. Let's look at Matthew 9 Verses 37 to 38. 
Then he said, Jesus again, then he said to to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Another very familiar uh, verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Really nice kind of, you know, oh, that's that's a nice verse, right? Ask him to send out workers. Those guys over there, send them out. Not necessarily me, right? Now, you notice two, two verbs in there, two key verbs, ask and send, ask and send, right? And the verb to ask can actually, you know, actually be translated as a strong want or a strong desire or a longing for or a begging. The image of somebody clinging to their parent's uh, leg, pleading for something to happen, pleading for their father to do something. The idea is Jesus is conveying that uh, conveying is that beg God to do something. Beg him to do it. Beg him to do what? Well, the next verb is to send, right? The verb send can be, can be actually translated as send out or drive out or expel or throw out or cast out. A little stronger than just send, right? And that original uh, Greek verb is used in a few different places, and I'm not going to put these all up on the screen, but uh, just follow along with me. Um, in Matthew 21:12, it says Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out. There's the verb, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. You remember that passage? So he drove them out. With regards to eternity, Mark 9, 47, tr- it, uh, the, the verb is translated as throne. It says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Early in the ministry of Jesus, he preached this message in a synagogue, if you remember, which basically he said, I'm the Messiah. All right? Just upset everybody. And it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and they drove him out of the town. And they took him to a, the brow of a hill, which, was on, which the town was built on, and, in order to throw him off the cliff, right? In Matthew eight sixteen, we see the verb translated as cast out. When evening came, many of the, those who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed the sick. There's a common theme in the use of this word wherever it's brought up in the scriptures. Typically, no one wants to be thrown out or driven out or cast out of anything. It was never a positive thing. In every circumstance, the action is done against that person's will. But notice how nicely we translate that verb in Matthew chapter 9. Ask the Lord to send out workers. As if somebody's just going to raise their hands and say, Oh, here I am. Send me. I'll go. Now that happens every once in a while. Kim and I did that. But, man, it's a lot. It's a lot for that to happen. We should be begging Jesus to drive us Christians out, us included, drive us out, even out to the mission field, out to the nations with the gospel, even if it is against our will. 
I don't want it to be against our will. I want desire to drive my choices. I really do. And if you'll notice on our newsletter, that's why I put that prayer request in there for desire. Because we need it. We really do need it. Where am I? Uh, (laughs) um, Maybe we're too focused on the top line of God blessing us. Seeking his blessing more than we're actually really seeking him. One thing COVID has done is upended what church is. And I think there's probably going to be some welcome changes. But I don't know what it's going to look like at the end of the day. We have Christian leaders falling left and right of major denominations and churches because we've created monsters. Because we've been so addicted to the blessing that we've not really done what God has asked us to do. Sorry, I'm really intense this morning, I know. (laughs) We spend hours on entertainment, but to spend 15 minutes in prayer and quiet time, I wouldn't be a healthy pastor if I didn't address this in myself and in my church. The truth is, God is looking for people who can blank the blessings. I can't see, that one's off. Blank the blessings. What would you fill that with? God is looking for people who can pass on the blessings, spread the blessings, share the blessings, give the blessings. Well, if you chose any one of those words, you would be wrong. God is looking for people who can survive the blessings, that don't make the blessings their central thing. People who can say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no to the American dream. It's not, that's not the important thing. I'm looking at this thing with eternal, eternal eyes, right? I'm going to go and take God's glory to the nations. That's what he's looking for. And an unbelievable byproduct of that is our greatest joy forever. But usually, we miss the bottom as we focus on the top line of the covenant and when it comes to missions, we can only think about like eight verses. You know, maybe, maybe if we were hard-pressed, we might come up with eight verses which directly deal with God's heart for the nations, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission is one of them. Acts 1, 8 is one of them, maybe. Matthew 24, 14 comes to mind right away. They're the, probably the most prominent, those kinds of verses. But there are almost 8,000 verses in the New Testament alone. And so simple math tells you that if there's only really eight missions verses that we call them, right, then only one one-thousandth of a, it's, it's really only one one-thousandth of, of a priority. It's really not that important. You know, it, we, we conclude it's not, not really a big deal. If it were, Jesus would have talked about it a lot more. There's 32,000 verses in the whole of Bible, almost 32,000 verses in in the Old and New Testament combined. So we conclude Jesus must have gotten uh, to the end of his ministry, right? And and in the last few minutes, he must have slapped his his forehead with his hand and said, you know what, I forgot. You're supposed to go to the nations. Not a big deal. It'll, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will come. He'll tell you about it. That's what we think. And there he goes. He, he, he ascends, and we have this milquetoast sort of Great Commission call. 
on the church. And as a result, uh, many Christians see Christianity like a big bookshelf with lots of different topics that they can get involved in or things that they can know and study. And we think, well, how can I be involved, you know? And, but, but they only read half their Bibles, and then we, we think about only, we only look at the things that are, like, right in front of us, the ministry needs that are immediate right in front of us. And we don't think about how that connects to all this. We, get, we consider getting involved, you know, helping people deal with their money, you know, in a financial ministry or whatever, since people are typically eight to 12,000 or more in debt these days, and we don't want them to be in bondage. We help in marriages because, you know, the, the divorce rate is so high, even in the church seems to be, you know, pretty high up there and all that kind of stuff. Or we help, you know, opening a Christian school in some area, or we help with a youth group, or we get involved in church growth and things like that. But where's missions? On that bookshelf. Missions is like, you know, the thin little paperback book, sort of the comic that gets stuck between the books and, and kind of gets lost in the back of the bookshelf someplace. We don't even see it. And the average Christian says the only thing, uh, you know, the, there's only eight verses which deal with the Great Commission. So, you know, it can't be that big of a deal. I want to think about these other things. And since we think it low priority and we think it's so specialized, then we conclude only certain people get a special call to it, right? All those missions types. That's what we think. And if you think that way, as your loving pastor, let me tell you, you are dead wrong. You are absolutely dead wrong. And I'm not wrong. Because missions isn't a thin little paperback book stuck between the books on the bookshelf. Missions is the shelf which holds up all the books. It's the most central thing. It is the whole thing. We help people get out of debt, not so that they can have more stuff or they can just be out of bondage and all that kind of stuff. That We, we, we have them come out of all that stuff so they can give more to God's mission. They can be focused on God's mission. We help marriages, not just so that they can be healthy and, you know, so they can, but, but we, 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 we do that so they can love their neighbor. They can actually, you know, reach out to internationals. They can actually really not be so taken up with all the fights at home and actually be about God's mission. We work with youth to give them a, a vision and knowledge as to what God is doing globally so that they can enter into this work. We grow churches so that they can give more money, more time, more resources, and more prayer can be directed to God's glory among the nations. That is our task. God is reaching the nations to reveal his greatest glory so that we might have our greatest joy. And everything else rests on that goal alone. I do not make too much of this. And I've been accused of that. We don't need a call as we see what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. We don't need a call. When Christians think of a missional calling, they usually go to Acts chapter 13, verse 2, where where it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them, for, for the work to which I have called them. And we point to that, you know, as proof of a specific calling, right? 
that you need this specific calling into missions. Maybe true that that was a specific call on them at that time, but we have to keep two significant things in mind in that context. First, Paul and Barnabas were not in their own hometown. They were already out on the mission field when this calling came. They had already taken the risk. They had already gone. Everybody wants a call to the mission field, but they want it from their hometown. And when they don't hear it clearly enough, then they say, well, you know, I guess I'm not supposed to be going. You know, I'm not supposed to be involved in this at all. They don't want to decide to go first and then trust the Lord where to go. In this context, it came after they took the risk and went to the field. But let's look at a second idea to consider the context. Of all the people who went overseas cross-culturally and who were sharing their faith in the book of Acts, 99% of them were driven out to do it via persecution. They weren't leaving their home saying, you know, praise the Lord, I'm going to go fulfill the Great Commission. They weren't doing that. They were driven. They were running scared. But God used them despite their lack of concern for the nations. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. 8-4. And of the 1% not persecuted, 8% of them got there because of their own zeal, such as Aquila and Priscilla. You know, they, they were uh, sent out of Rome by the Roman government, uh, the governmental uh, authorities. But when they got... Uh, they got someplace and they went with Paul to Ephesus. We don't know why they were with Paul. They're just there, right? 18% uh, were there because their church sent them out. You remember in Acts 11:22, they the church sent Barnabas out. The rest, 74%, got challenged by the Apostle Paul to go, like Timothy in Acts 16:3. Good pastor Paul was, urging people to go to the mission field. When the Bible uses the word calling, it usually refers to being sure of, of your, your, your place with Christ, that you're a believer. Make your calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10, right? It rarely speaks about being called to a certain mission. Only one man had a clear one-on-one from the living God, and that was Paul, when Jesus himself spoke to him out of the sky, if you remember that, and it changed his entire life, but he too was leaving his own hometown. So it didn't come where he was comfortable and safe and secure, and he was actually working against the Lord when it came. Although I encourage anyone who has a sort of a one-on-one experience with Jesus, you know, this encounter with Christ to obey it, uh, for sure, obey the Lord, Right? I will say that God gets most people serving cross-culturally in ways other than a specific call. I remember the pressure to feel like you had a call when Kim and I said we, were, we wanted to go to the mission field. Well, do you have a call? Where are you called? You know, it, it's like, it, it was almost like if you don't have a call, you can't go. See, most other people want a call because of the other people claim to have a call. It's not really necessary. It's not necessary at all. If you want to join with what God has been doing for thousands of years already, I am sure that God will will accept and bless that decision. I'm sure he will. Do not be boxed into thinking that you need a call to join God in kingdom work. He may want you out there for your sake as much as theirs. 
I hope we understand that although God calls some, God's far more interested in us as individuals and as a church in simply being obedient to his global plan. Joining him in what he has already been doing for thousands of years. He's working towards a phenomenal goal. His greatest glory and our greatest joy. Amen to that. So pray for us that we understand where we're supposed to go. What are we supposed to be doing? What is this about? I'm praying that we have eternal vision. That we start to get our eyes off of our savings accounts, the houses that we want to buy, the, the trouble that this brings. And we actually enter into what God wants to do and has been doing. And I'll shut up. Amen. Let me pray us out of here. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your blessing. But we pray that we could survive the blessing. That it wouldn't become our central thing. But that we would look at it not only as something that we enjoy because it comes from a loving father. But it's also the tools with which we go and take the gospel to the world. Father, I don't know what this means for us as individuals or as a church. I know we do some of this already, and I want to do more. And I just pray that your spirit would guide and direct us. That you, Lord Jesus, would define who we are as a church. That not me, not anybody else on leadership would define that. But you, your word, your calling, your desires would define who we are and what we get involved in. And where we go. We love you so much. And we want to speed your return. So we pray that that would happen in this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I am going to go home and go to bed after that one. I don't don't think you guys know that when I preach, a lot of energy gets expended. And I do go home and sleep for a couple hours. So you can pray for a good nap. Amen. So uh, hang out. Eat some of what Joseph brought brought us. Joseph from Delicia Chocolate, he brought that. So uh, eat it all up. It's all free for the taking. Amen? Go and be blessed.